I'm Jim Frawley, and this is Bellwether. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bellwether. I'm very excited about this topic. This has always been a a very large passion of mine. Uh, The topic of public speaking is one that strikes fear into just about anybody that you speak to. Um, And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, it seems, for people to overcome this massive fear of public speaking. We hear the joke. Uh, people are more afraid to speak in public than they are to die. So <laughs> they would rather uh, be in the casket than giving the eulogy at a funeral, um, which is uh, which is unusual. You know, considering how we are social individuals, we, we really enjoy the, the social aspect of being with other people. Uh, putting ourselves on display, that vulnerability of, of being in front of people is is a big challenge. Um, but when you want to think about your personality and letting your personality shine through, when we, when we talk about public speaking, I feel like one of the big challenges is not necessarily what to say, but how to say it. And what we are, are concerned with is really, you know, is our personality going to resonate well with other people? So when we think about personality, personality are two different things. Personality is your, your set of values, your motivations and everything that you are. But it's also what other people see. And so the running theory, or one that I've always heard, is uh, the fear of public speaking is actually a fear of social rejection. And your brain treats social rejection in the same way that it treats physical pain. So you hear someone who went through a breakup and um, it, it, their brain is basically telling them that that they broke their arm. So uh, when we think of social rejection and we think of social pain, standing in front of a room full of potential social rejection, what happens? We shake, we get nervous, we sweat, and we get that fight or flight response. Your brain thinks you're in front of a room of lions. Um, so that's nice, right? So we know why people are afraid, but how do you actually overcome it? And that's really the big challenge. And that's why I am super excited uh, for an old and very dear friend and coach of mine uh, who is a public speaking expert for many, many years. And he is here today to tell us how to overcome this fear of public speaking, how to beat this, uh, this brain trick and, uh, and get us to be the best public speakers that we could possibly be. So with that being said, I would like to introduce Mr. Tony Fiola. Tony, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jim. This is really exciting. It's very exciting. I have never done one of these before, and I'm really looking forward to it. Good. Uh, And I'm surprised you haven't done one of these before, because considering all of the people that you know Uh over the years and all the work that you've done with public speaking, you have coached thousands of people, (laughs) thousands of people. Uh, and I am the lucky first person to have you on a podcast. And I am very lucky to be here. That's great. And maybe this will be my first. <laughs> very good. Of, of a few. Of many, many, because you have a, a lot of good knowledge, uh, a lot of good knowledge to share. So tell Thank us you. a little bit about you. You are, um, some would call the master of public speaking, right? With the, with the impact you've had on so many people, with the work that you've done, especially with me. I mean, this was... 20-something years ago that, that we worked together. Uh, why public speaking? Tell a little bit about you and why you love public speaking and all the good stuff that you do. 
Well, you know, I've been teaching at the same prep school, uh, Premier Prep School, Holy Ghost Prep, for 39 years. I think that's about to end because I'm getting a little tired. Yeah. But um, I've been running their speech and debate team all that time. And I just developed a passion for it. And um, it's either that or my cats. That's pretty much it. <laughs> it's pretty much what I do. But I've loved every second of it. And um, I just love making people grow, you know, into who they can be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and what's really great about that, especially at a prep school time, is you have a lot of people who are moldable at that time, right? So it's a very uh, transitionary period mm -hmm. for individuals, and it's a very open time and a challenging time mm -hmm. for a lot of people. So to add over the, the challenge of learning how to speak in mm -hmm. public with all of the stuff going through has to be a pretty unique challenge. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I can recall many kids like one Carl. Carl couldn't stay still you know, his, his freshman year. And he slurred a lot. Yep. Okay. But I said, no, 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 you have it. You have the gift. Let's just clear out the gook so that the gift can shine. And in my world, he won a national title by his junior year. And so I like to prove to people that they can do it. It's just they need somebody to help them clear out the weeds so that the flowers can grow. So for Carl, you saw the gift. Yeah. Yeah. Does everybody have the gift? Um, well, it's like, can anyone be a great actor? Mm, people can be actors. I don't think anyone can be a great actor. Mm -hmm. Okay. But people can always be way better than they think they can. Yeah. You know, that, that's my opinion. Now, when you see the gift in someone like Carl, prep school student, um, teenager, right. essentially, right. Do you see how would an adult, when you think about upgrading it to, let's grab someone in their 40s, right, who's going through this, you know, I'm in a corporate job or something, how do they tap into that gift? Well, I find that I have helped some pretty significant people mm -hmm. over the years. Uh, one was Marin Alsap, who was the uh, conductress of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, helped her writing a speech and helped her deliver a speech, and some other people. Uh, perhaps even more famous. And I find they have the same problems. It's no different. They're just as scared. They lack the body control. They lack the vocal variety. They lack the passion when they're up there. I mean, they could perform the heck out of any text. But when they're speaking, you know, the character facade disappears. They have to be themselves. So I, don't, I have not found it any different working with an adult or even an experienced adult or a kid, same thing. Now, so they're they're afraid, right? Why yeah. do you think people are afraid? Is it because they have to take away that character facade and actually have to yeah. show their true selves? Well, you said it in the beginning, and you know, I go back to a book that I read in high school. Uh, why am I afraid to tell you who I am, hmm. right? And the answer to that is because you may not like who I am, and that's all I have. Hmm. So, you know, we want to be liked. We are mostly outer directed, especially when we're up on stage. We feel vulnerable. So first, I think you need to get out of your head, you know, and, and not give the audience that much power and just have a good time. OK, and there are a lot of other things I could talk about now, but that's generally my advice. Get it out of your head. Don't give them the power. Enjoy yourself up there and then they will enjoy 
you as well. So getting something out of your head sounds like a lot of reflective work, right? Because I feel like it's about being comfortable with yourself. And, right. and you know, it's the old Rousseau quote, how can anyone be satisfied in life if they're not satisfied with the person that they can't be separated from? That's right. you. Um, so is that the first step to being an effective public speaker is figuring out who you are as an individual to be comfortable? Well, yeah, yeah, I, I guess. But I'm more about learning your body, learning your voice, learning your wording, and learning how to control with those three, the audience, by caring about them, but also using techniques to pull them into your world. So it's a matter, as I said before, stripping away the guck to give you that total control of body, voice, face, gesture, emotions, and words. Okay. And that takes time, but once you have one taste of success, you go for it. It's like golf. Yeah, exactly. You get one good hit and then maybe you're interested. In oh, I tried golf. golf for the first time this summer in Florida. Forget about <laughs> it. <laughs> Never again? Well, I didn't hit anything into the water. That's good. Very good. <laughs> I did the, what do you call it? I did the driving range. Yeah. But uh, I knew this wasn't for me. <laughs> And you can learn. Well, so, okay, so you know golf isn't for you. Yeah, what about people yeah, who try yeah. to give their first speech and they say, no, speaking isn't for me? Well, everybody speaks every day. So you have to kind of tell them <laughs> you do this, okay? It's just you're not used to a lot of people looking at you at the same time. So that's the kind of thing where I encourage everyone not to give up on because you do it. It's just a matter of shining it, shining it up, making it good, you know. So when you go um, thinking through, we talked about the strategy of being, you know, yourself in front of a group of people getting out of your head, right? And that's a strategic look. But then you've got techniques and tactics. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the most important step, uh, first step that a person could take if they're looking to adjust or improve their, their speaking capability? Well, I have a, kind of an acronym that I call BCCPP. BCCPP. -P -P. I know, right? <laughs> Say that a couple times with a drink. Um, <laughs> the first is belief, okay? The belief that at some point you will be really good at this, okay? If you don't think you're going to be good at this, you won't be good at this. So again, get out of your head. Get rid of the negatives, you know, send them on a vacation for a little bit. Not too far. You can't afford it. But uh, just just believe in yourself. So that's number one. Uh, number two. Oh, I, I also used to make students and even adults say this phrase over and over. I have come to bring you joy to make the world a better place. Hmm. So if you see yourself as someone who's bringing the gift to people, then all of a sudden you feel a little more empowered. Uh, sometimes if, if a kid or an adult will stop, I'll make them say that line five times and then make them back in because you wanna, you wanna empower their mind, you wanna put the positive thoughts in their minds. And once they do that, things start kicking, things start moving. It's a shift of power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The next thing, as I said before, is control. You want control of the body, control of the eyes, control of the vocals. There's a lot of things in vocals. It could be fast. It could be slow. It could be loud. It could be soft, right? And implicit in the vocals is contrast. 
like if the whole world turned orange right now, you probably wouldn't even see orange. You'd see nothing hmm. because there's no contrast. Similarly, if you want people to pay attention, you have to play with the variables to get them to lean in. Uh, if, let's say, the air conditioning goes on right now, okay, or the heater, we'd hear it. And then we wouldn't hear it anymore because we've heard it so much, we don't pay attention. But when it stops, what happens? We look and we notice that something changed. So you have to give them as many possible contrasts. And that, well, that's one of the techniques to, uh, to get the audience to really be with you, even if they don't want to be there. And let's face it, a lot of times they don't, you know. They're there because they're with friends they have or, to be. Right. or they have to be, you know, right. in a school situation or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Oh, and the, uh, let me see the other ones. Um, passion. Um, I always tell this this uh, simple little story. If um, Jim, if I gave you five envelopes and I said you have five hours to stamp these five envelopes. I mean, what a boring thing that is. It requires no energy. It requires nothing. And if I were to watch you do it, it would be like a Samuel Beckett play. You know, <laughs> be like nothing to be done for like two hours. But if I said your little puppy that you just got is on the windowsill in your five-story New York apartment and the window is open, you would dash right to that window to save your puppy. And in that intensity, you know, there's energy. So you have to figure out when to energize with passion and with intensity, you know, different parts of your speech, different parts of your presentation. Uh, the next P is uh, preparation. Um, if you know what you're talking about, you don't have to over obsess with, with structure, with, I mean, you're gonna have that and if you get lost, you're not gonna you're not gonna fall apart because you are the expert. So you do your research, you do everything ahead of time, and then crucially, you practice out loud. Uh, years ago, I was invited to give a speech in South Dakota. It was a South Dakota uh, speech and debate state conference, and I wrote uh, the speech almost word for word, and I never do that, but I was bored on the airplane, I had two flights. And I did it, and then when I got to the hotel, I said, well, you know, I, I really don't need to, uh, I don't need to practice this out loud. And then I went, no, I think I should. Well, when I practiced it out loud, it was four hours. Hmm. And the speech was only supposed to be an hour and a half. Okay, I did not know that, because initially I practiced it in my head. You can't practice in your head. You have to air it out loud. So I always tell people, do it out loud once verbally. Then if you have your, your camera, videotape yourself because you're gonna see something that might annoy you <laughs> or you're gonna see something that you love, okay? Either way, you have some tools to work on before you get to the real presentation. And the final P I call personalization. Two things, number one, you let the audience know with your eyes that you care about them and you care about their understanding. You know, peering one-on-one -on -one into the eyes of one person, 
shaking your head to one person to say, do you get it? Do you understand? It makes the audience feel, I mean, as they should feel, that you care. Because if you come off as somebody who's just orating, who's just dropping words out of their mouth like a dead mice that was in a poet, a poem years ago, um, they're not going to care. Okay. And the other part of personalization is connect yourself to the topic, whatever it is, somehow. Show that it's important to you, not just important to them, but important to you, because then you become somebody super credible. The ethos uh, aspect just, you know, hits the ceiling if you could tell a personal example as to how this topic impacted your life. And, you know, usually in the speech world, that comes in the seven-minute mark. <laughs> if it's a 10-minute speech, it's at the seven-minute mark. If it's the 20, it's the 14-minute mark. That's usually where people want to hear something like that. Interesting. So there is there is a structure then to how you want to articulate your speech. Oh, there are so many structures. There really are. I mean, you know, there are so many. And um, if you know the structures and you have to learn them, that actually would make you very successful doing extemporaneous speaking. Okay. Extemporaneous speaking, you know, as you know, is speaking off the cuff with a marginal amount of preparation. It's different from impromptu where you have like no preparation. Mm -hmm. But um, if you know how to organize things in your head ahead of time, then things will just flow. You know, I have told students, give me a topic. And in five seconds, I can create a fluent, interesting seven minute speech and their jaws drop. And I say, well, you know, I've been doing this for a while. But at the same time, I'm using structures that I know. I'm using principles of organization that I know. I'm using developmental things that I know, which is basically name it, explain it, give an example of it, summarize it. Okay. So I know that's what I'm going to do for each of the points. So what looks like magic is really a lot of things that have been deep set in my mind that I just go back to. And then I just hope I have, you know, interesting things to say that are novel, that are useful. But usually in an extemporaneous uh, situation, you know, it's about something you know. It's not about something you don't know. Some random topic that... Yeah, yeah. Impromptu could be, you know, talk about cockroaches or talk about anything like that. (laughs) Talk about my cats. That could be impromptu. Are you not an expert on cockroaches? (laughs) No, I don't have any here. All right, well, that's good. We have ants. (laughs) (laughs) We do have ants. And when I put the cat food out right near the window... Forget it. Yeah, all Forget done. it. It's the, the, the ants are eating it more than the cats. <laughs> um, okay, so so that's interesting. So w- the way that you've separated this uh, is really content versus presence and persona, mm-hmm. right? So content is a process that you keep in your head, which you can basically research different types mm-hmm. um, and learn that and practice that to say, how do mm-hmm. I organize something in my mind to just filter and put things in an appropriate path mm-hmm. so that I'm able to speak on any particular topic at any particular mm-hmm. time where you give that to me and I know how to structure it in my head, mm-hmm. right? And it will just take saying that takes practice, right? right? But then you've also got the persona aspect mm-hmm. with your individual belief that you're going to be successful all the way through your B, C's and P's mm-hmm. um, into personalization and preparation. How much preparation should a person spend on creating content 
versus preparing their presence and preparing how they're going to present themselves in front of mm -hmm. a group? Well, it really depends on how good you are at both. You know, uh, I'm more of a content person because I like to listen for the information, but I could be distracted by a bad delivery. Mm -hmm. Now, this is my advice. Uh, when you're preparing content, you have to remember that there are different kinds of listeners in the audience. And usually it's based on how you were raised as a kid. So, for example, most people like examples because most of us as kids were told stories or read fairy tales. Okay, so that's like part of our chemistry, like right away. Some people had uh, very unemotional upbringings for whatever reason. Okay, they're not used to touchy-feely stories. So they are going to look for facts and statistics. If you give that person just examples, they're going to be bored because they want the facts. Then you have people who were raised by, you know, I don't want to be offensive, but let's say dictatorial parents. Mm -hmm. Children should be seen, but not heard. You know, that kind of a parent where they feel as if their opinion is not important, but authorities are. So they are the kind of people, because of how they were raised, looking for authorities, according to Dr. So-and-so from Harvard University, according to the Yale Review. They want to hear that because that's how they were raised. So I was taught by, by one of my mentors, Lanny, Lanny Nagelin from Texas. I was taught that um, it's best in every part of your speech to sprinkle a little bit of each of those. Mm. Okay. Always erring on the side of more examples because most people like examples. But again, if it's an example-heavy speech, the intellectual is going to think, oh, this is nonsense, okay? And the test of one who needs uh, authority is going to feel like, oh, no one important is telling me any of this, so I don't think I should believe it, you know? And, and I found that when I help people write speeches, when I make them do that, instantly their speeches are more successful content and what's interesting about that is that it's based on a person's individual history. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. by demographic. So if you're giving a speech to a group of accountants mm -hmm. or you're giving a speech to a group of teachers or you're giving a speech to a bunch of real estate agents, mm -hmm. it, it, regardless of where, what industry or whatever type of group you're talking to, mm -hmm. you're going to have different histories. Oh, of sure. Yeah. yeah. It's about the individual. Yeah. It's not about the group, uh, the group collective. Yeah. Although it's important, I think, you know, ahead of time, obviously, to know about the group collective. Right? Sure. You know, audience analysis is so important. Sometimes you can fail before you even begin by not asking about, you know, the components of your audience. You know, are, is there is there a sex makeup? Is there an age makeup? Is there an education makeup? Is there a racial makeup? You need to know. Because you need to sprinkle out something for everybody. I hate to say it, but it's like, you know, whenever you see a college advertise for its university, you know, its university, there's always, you know, a certain five, six people right, in the picture. Right. You, you know right, what I'm saying, right. right? Because they want to say we welcome everybody. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the same thing when you're giving a speech. You don't want to alienate anyone. You know, not at all. One time um, I was asked to give a speech to, I thought, 
were uh, grade school kids. And I don't even remember what the topic was. It was a long time ago. So I put it and my, my information and my content was germane to the young kid, right? It was funny. It was cute. It was energetic. And then I walked in and no, it was their parents. (laughs) And not only that, it was their mothers, right? So instantly I had to just change tactics in my head because I realized some of the examples we're not going to speak to the moms in the room. Right. You know, they may have reached the boys, but not the moms. So I made the error back then. And so I try not to do it again. And I imagine that's part of, you know, that just yeah. goes under the bucket of preparation, right? Yeah, it's, sure. It's sure. not only preparing the words you're going to say, but how are those words going to land based yeah. on who's listening? Absolutely. Now, absolutely. What, what advice would you have for someone who did that preparation, but it was the wrong preparation? And now you have, you walk in and you say, uh, this has suddenly become a somewhat extemporaneous mm-hmm. speech, mm-hmm. even though I've prepared some mm-hmm. words. How do you adapt to something like that? Well, you know, I might use the phrase, now, if I were speaking to your sons, I would say this. Okay. And then come up with something, but I'm speaking to you. So I'm saying this. So you can still use some of the things mm-hmm. you have, letting them know that this would have been directed to, you know, somebody else. But then you have to come up. <laughs> you have to be like right there on the ball coming up with something original. Right. And, you know, you, you can. I, I do believe people people think quickly on their feet. You don't think they do, but they do. Yeah. I, I do think they do. Yeah. Depending, and, on, depending on the stressful situation, we could come up with some creative, <laughs> very creative things. I think so. I think so. And you asked about content versus delivery. You know, in this world, I, mean, I hate to say it. But delivery always trumps, and no pun intended, always trumps content, you know, because how many times do people say things incredibly well, but make no sense, you know? So you need, you need with contrast to win people over with your delivery so that your content shines through because content could get lost in a bad delivery. Case in point. I went years ago in the 80s to an English uh, literature conference for college professors. Now, I'm not a college professor. And I thought, okay, this will be interesting. You know, I want to see how they present. Well, what generally they did is they opened their text and they read quickly and in a monotone. That sounds awful. Yeah, and I'm looking around and I'm going, well, yeah, it was awful to me. To the people in the room, that was their expectation, right? Like they didn't care. They were just listening for the content. But for somebody like me who was new, I I could not pay attention. I really couldn't. So, yeah, I learned because of that, that, yeah, there are some people, intellectuals, who just want that. And that room just had all of that that type. Mm-hmm. But you need to appeal to everybody. Yeah. You do. So what advice would you give for someone who wants to learn how to tell a story? Mm-hmm. So I've worked with a lot of clients just on presence. And, you know, they say, oh, I'm terrible at, mm-hmm. you know, public speaking because of whatever. And a lot of times in order to make it simple, I say you're just telling them a story, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So it doesn't even matter who the audience mm-hmm. is. You just tell the story that you want to mm-hmm. tell. What advice do you have for someone? Because storytelling I mean, there are some amazing groups out there with amazing storytellers, and you can get into a rabbit hole of how to tell a great story. But what tips would you have for someone who needs to learn how to tell a story? 
Well, first of all, um, telling a story has now become the equivalent of uh, let's have a conversation. In other words, it's used a lot and not just in the context of speaking. You know, uh, actors have used this phrase pre-Oscars. You know, I'm happy that I was able to tell my story in that film or to tell his story in that film. And this is what I think it means. Number one, I think it means that there is an honesty and a truthfulness and a connection to the story you are telling. It's meaningful to you. And as a result, it's meaningful to them. Second, in every good story, you have to begin, and this is from Covey's book years ago, right? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, was it seven? Seven. Seven. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Um, you have to begin with the end in mind. Because if you don't, you can spiral out of control. You know, you need to know where you're going. And then you incrementally need to build to that finish. Okay, so that's that's what I always tell people, you know, know where you're going with the story and get there the shortest way. The longer it takes, the more you will bore. <laughs> well, the more you will bore. The, the more audience. you read out of a textbook, the oh, more you'll bore. Oh my god! Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, one more quick question for you. So you talked about when we talk about sitting in front of a group, right? And this could be, you know, we, we had talked about. Um, even before we did this podcast, you know, you've got different types. You've got auditorium speeches and you've got classroom speeches and you've got meeting speeches and mm -hmm. each one takes a different version of you. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's based mm -hmm. on your audience and based on your preparation and your belief that you're going to be successful and all that other stuff. Um, but your challenges are different for each mm -hmm. one. If you're in an auditorium, you're not necessarily seeing faces, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, you know, it's a lot of people. So it's nerve wracking in a meeting or a small work presentation. Uh, you may only have five people where you're right in front of everybody and it's, it may actually be more nerve wracking. What advice do you have for someone to overcome that nervousness? How do you get that belief system into your mind that, yes, you know what, this could be a total disaster, but I know what I'm talking about. I am an expert and they are here to learn from me. And I'm spreading this joy to this world of whatever topic it is. What is it reflective? Is it, um, you know, do you practice in front of a mirror and, you know, kind of Stuart Smiley stuff? Yes, you are loved and, you know, <laughs> you know, all that. What what can people do to overcome this? Well, first, if you're a guy, check your zipper. <laughs> <laughs> there was one time where I was at the Arden Theater and I was introducing a show and I looked impeccable in black. And it was a long time ago, so I still had my hair and I was still a little bit dashing and everything was black and everything was sparkling and then a little old lady, about 78 years old, went, <laughs> she was sitting in the front row. And I'm like, what is she doing? And then she goes, and she takes her finger and she points below my belt. Everyone saw I was wearing red underwear. Nice. Okay. I mean, it was like you couldn't miss it. Okay. <laughs> so casually, I, you know, closed the jacket and yeah. just pretended nothing happened. Of course, sometimes the best way to deal with that is making a joke about it. Right. You know, but I, I didn't have time. It wasn't a speech. It was just an introduction. So that's just a silly example of what you need to do. A um, couple, uh, couple of hints, I think. 
If you're speaking to an auditorium, I always tell people it's easier because you can't see their eyes. And I always tell them, chunk the audience into four. You know, look at this fourth as if it's one person. Look at this fourth as if it's one person. Look at this fourth as if it's one person. And vary where you place your eye contact. What This is what I mean. Don't go like, I'm looking totally left, and then I look right next to it, and then I look right next, because that becomes predictable and boring. So I might begin on the far left and say a couple lines, and then I might shift to the far right and say a couple lines, and then I might move next, and then I may not do the one I skipped. I may go back to the first. In other words, the more contrast you give them, visually even, the better, the better it is. And um, in terms of, and basically it's the same, same speech skills you use, but you should be less intimidated by a stage because you don't see people giving you like, oh, you're terrible or, oh, or, you know, you see them falling asleep. And sometimes I do when I'm tired and I'm in the theater in row one. And I forget where I was in New York a couple of years ago, but I think I was watching uh, uh, Something Rotten, the, the fun Shakespeare parody, and it was wonderful, but I was really tired. <laughs> and the guy stamped his foot <laughs> right in front of me and woke me up and I gave him two thumbs and that was pretty much it. <laughs> in terms of meetings, um, you know, some people say, you know, jockey for position. If it's in a circle, try to sit in the middle. I mean, if it's a semicircle, try to sit in the middle or close to the middle. And, and some people say, try to make the first comment because it shows you're interested and shows you're eager. I find that um, if there are issues with meetings, uh, either you don't know parliamentary procedure because most official meetings are run by that. So you really need to get to know it. But secondly, I think... Um, you feel like, oh, I have nothing to offer. So what I suggest is you bring your game to the game. You know, you say something like, you know, I'm the youngest person in this room. And I think my perspective represents a large perspective out there. And this is what it is. Or you may say, you know, I'm about to retire. Hey, I've been here for so many years. <laughs> That uh, I'd like to give you a historical perspective on where things are and, and I think where things need to go. Or you could be the activist, whatever, you know, whether it's a race activist or a sexual orientation activist or whatever. And they say, I'm representing this, hear my voice. So if you can bring the you that represents other yous to the meeting, they will respect you even more and then you don't have to worry about not uh, not knowing enough or feeling like you're not into it enough or feeling like oh you're too new at this meeting blah 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 blah. which is in, so it, it almost sounds like you're separating so you're bringing your game but in, te in in a technical term you're separating yourself from you so you are representing your perspective which is, you know, that's not right or wrong. It's just a perspective. You are representing uh, a group. So you're speaking on behalf of other people, which sometimes is easier to do. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's great advice. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. The other thing I wanted to say is um, we had mentioned this a little bit in the beginning, but I wanted to talk about it. 
because uh, we talked about, you know, fear. And you're, you're hilarious when you introduced the, you know, death and stuff and eulogy. And I, I totally agree with you. I was trying not to laugh. I didn't know if I was supposed to. You're allowed. But I was laughing. <laughs> so these are the, some, of the, some of the tips that I give people that are used in a combination could be helpful in eliminating fear and therefore in allowing you to just go for it. Uh, first, I call is the breath of life. And it's very true. If you take like five or 10 deep breaths, slow, slow in, slow out, you will relax yourself. There are a lot of other techniques that I don't have time to get into here and you need to see it uh, that are even more helpful with breathing, but it does work. Also with breathing, if you feel you're boring, and you know, sometimes I am, okay, sometimes I'm not. <laughs> It depends on how tired I am. I don't think boring would ever be a word anybody would ever use to describe it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think uh, when I was in that front row of uh, something, <laughs> that rotten. Shit, something rotten, something was rotten. Um, um, you say your, your words while yawning. Because when you yawn, you aerate your words and your, your words get taken to places you normally wouldn't take them. So if I oh, do it. Jim, how are you today? Like, I've done things that I don't normally do with my voice. So once you do that kind of thing, you subliminally give your body permission to go there. So th that's, that's pretty good with that whole breath thing. Uh, the other thing I call talk to the trees. Some people just don't uh, project loud enough. So I always tell them, even with a microphone, sometimes they still mumble or they look down. Um, pretend as if the audience is like, three times farther away. So I might say, hey, Jim, how you doing today? Good seeing you. You look great. How's mom? How's dad? How's your family? I'm speaking as if you are farther away, but it energizes my voice. And when you use energy, it, you also use your nervous energy for a positive reason. Like nervous energy means you're not using me, dude. Use me. I'm here. And that's why it's rattling and that's why you're shaking. You're not using it. Then I call something a steer into the skid. I was taught by uh, my driving teacher. We used to call him Aldo Chain. His name was Aldo and he was a chain smoker. Nice. <laughs> so in the car, he was like once we were like dying because I'm allergic to cigarette smoke. It was like one cigarette after another. And he said, you know, if you're on ice and you start to skid to the right, don't go left. You have to stay with the right until you get control, and then you could hopefully stare out of it. And that's the same thing with, with speaking. So if your leg is shaking, your leg is saying, can you walk a little bit? So walk. If your hands feel shaky or tense, use a big gesture. Find a place where you can open your hands wide or point way in the back to somebody in the audience. Get your hand involved. Steer more in the direction. And that's also related to what I call intense, the tenseness. So if you have shaking hands or you have nervous feet, uh, what I tell people to do is beforehand, tense up every part of your body that tends to show nervousness. Because once you tense them up for like 10 seconds, 15 seconds, Right afterwards, you shake it out. It's in a state of relaxation now. So you're beginning relaxed.
Okay. Uh, next, uh, hit the man in the moon. Call it that. And uh, that means, you know, uh, I was on a baseball team in, in grade school. Okay. I quit because the, uh, the pitcher threw a ball in my head. I mean, not the, the coach threw a ball <laughs> in my head because I, I, when I hit, hit ball in practice, it hit him. Of course, I didn't mean it. Right. And he, as the mature adult that he was, chose to almost kill me <laughs> with the ball. So I quit after that. Um, but um, he did tell us, you know, you have to imagine yourself hitting the home run, you know, that you want to hit that ball so high and so far you're going to hit the moon. And, you know, sports coaches, you know, always tell their, their athletes that you have to see yourself succeeding. And that's very, very, very important. Positive visualization is very important. Next is uh, tap into your superhero. Um, you know, some of the shyest people in the world naturally are great actors who can do anything. And what they basically say is, when I'm there and being somebody else, I own it, but I'm still kind of shy myself. Well, all you have to do is pretend you're somebody else. If I told you to lift a 50-pound weight, Jim, you would do it. And then I said, keep on holding that weight, and I'm going to add another 50. Of course, for you, that would be pretty easy to pick up. But if I said I'm adding another 100, you would probably go like this. And I said, if I'm adding another 200, and of course, there's no weight there, right? So it's mind over matter, okay? Hmm. So we can pretend we are Superman delivering a speech, a Wonder Woman delivering a speech, some of these superheroes on these Marvel films yeah, yeah. delivering a speech. It works. It really, really works. Final thing I think is, is hilarious. I had a, this is relating to high school, but I've used it with adults too. I call it hotel hell. I had a sophomore years ago who was brilliant, Italian kid. And I said, Anthony, you, I said, Anthony, <laughs> Anthony, come on, Andy. You can be a national finalist. Now, Jim was a national champion and a national finalist, so he knows what I'm talking about. It means top six in the nation out of 300 people who qualify to the national tournament. It's a pretty big deal. And he said, oh, my God, I'm only a sophomore. I'm only 15. I said, trust me. So we did some work. And when we got to the meet the day before it began, we sat in it. Well, I sat in a very crowded lobby. And people were just all over. They were trying to register and check in. It was like chaos. And I said, Anthony, you're going to deliver the speech to me for three hours. He said, you're kidding, right? <laughs> I said, no, you're going to do it. And. People were banging into him. There was noise galore. Uh, people were looking at him. People were talking, you know, around him or about him or asking, what the heck are they doing? Well, he made the top six. And he said to me afterwards, he said, that hotel hell stuff. Everything was easy after that. After that zoo. Yeah, that was you know, a nightmare. What was the word? Yeah, right. It can't get any worse than that. So, you know, I mean, I would do that prudently with specific adults. Sure, yeah. Because right, right. you don't want to freak them out. But it works. Put them in the worst case scenario. And then just talking becomes really easy. So there's some of the, the hints that I use, the helpful 
you know, ploys that I use to help people get rid of their nervousness. That's great. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I like how you say it's mind over matter, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, when you're giving a speech, no matter how big or small, mm -hmm. you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Right. And with your hotel hell, you know, you yeah. could you could imagine it's in front of that and people walking across you and everything else. Um, so it's just that's great. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, I've um, you know, I loved um, working with high school students all the time and also many college students. I did that for a couple of decades and and it's in the last eight years with adults. And um, I, I just like to make people improve. You know, it's rewarding to me, and I know they appreciate it a lot. Like, uh, you know, I've I've worked with with Jim, and I've worked with his two brothers. Yeah. You know, Mike and Kevin, and they were all national finalists. You know, and his mom Babs and everybody. You yeah, know, yeah. just you, you meet some wonderful people, and um, you know, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of you know anybody that that I've you know. Uh, helped in any way. And uh, so that's that's rewarding to me, even beside any of the the victories or any of the successful speeches, the fact that people have grown and they become you know who they who they could. And that's and that goes back to what yeah. we talked about at the beginning. You know, you you've worked with so many people at fundamental points in their lives and giving them a platform where you could learn to speak in public, which is the most frightening thing that most people could do. And they could do it well. And having a successful track of so many people being able to do it well is uh, is amazing. It's it's amazing that that you know everybody has a gift, mm -hmm. and when you can find someone who's able to bring that gift out of people, it's a it's a pretty special yeah, thing. So that's yeah, a good I'm, testament to I'm, you, man. That's I'm glad amazing. I did it. Yeah. yeah. No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. Yeah. Right? Well, there's a lot of people who would agree with that. No regrets. They uh, they benefited a lot from you. Um, I always ask everyone, recommend a book. Do you have any kind of book recommendation? Well, the one I just got in, and I've been behind in reading for various reasons, but I'm, I'm a reader of plays. I love reading plays because it forces me to imagine everything else that a novel gives you. Okay, so uh, last year's Pulitzer went to a play called The Cost of Living, and it's a, a fascinating play about two, uh, the relationship to, to not couples, but let's just say, you know, person A, person B, and person C, person D. And one in each set has a severe challenge, disability, or whatever. And it's, um, you know, the cost of living, you know, you know, does that make life not worth living? Does that, so I'm glad that a meaty, uh, play one because it's i mean i didn't start it yet but yeah. i'm really excited but it sounds very relevant too oh, it's yeah. just something yeah, that, sure. that most people can can relate to in yeah. some way way shape or form absolutely great i also read a lot of uh you know self-help books those are good you know you know <laughs> some were titles i, I couldn't really say <laughs> And, and I'm attracted to those, like, you know, nasty titles because they're funny, but they're good. Yeah. They're really good. They get you yeah. thinking. Yeah, they do get you thinking, you know. That's perfect. Absolutely, yeah. Great. Well, Tony, this has been um, fantastic. I know a lot of people are going to really benefit from this, especially those individual tactics and um, separating out content and and presence mm -hmm. and, and delivery and all that stuff. So, uh, 
you are an expert. You are a legend. You are a uh, phenomenal human being. So uh, we are thrilled to have you on this episode. More than anything, I'm in need of a cannoli. <laughs> <laughs> that could be arranged. Right. That could be arranged. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Now, do something for yourself. Bellwether is much more than just a podcast. Join us at bellwetherhub.com, where you can read riveting articles, view upcoming events, and connect with other interesting people. I look forward to seeing you out there soon.